uh, what a joy it is to be back here after 10 years away, and especially on this Mission Sunday, what a, a privilege it is to share a message. Uh, in preparing for this message, I had an immediate flashback to October of 2002, uh, when I had an opportunity to introduce myself to this congregation and preach. Uh, as Dan has already alluded to, we have moved from California uh, here to Chicago. I had just completed my work as director of the Doctor of Ministry program, met Dan during that time. Uh, he was a student in the program. I, I was his academic advisor. I guess you might call that his academic boss. And, and then I came to work on the staff here, and the roles reversed very quickly. So after preaching on that particular Sunday morning, I was you know, standing in the proverbial pastoral greeting line, and a woman stopped and planted herself in front of me, looked intently in my eye and said, were you bad? Translation, was this move from California to Chicago just before winter some sort of punishment? <laughs> and I would say when people you know, question my wisdom about moving from California to Chicago, uh, if you love what you do and with whom you do it, you can be anywhere. And I met it until I retired. Yes, we do live in Monterey, California now. So what an honor it is to be able to speak on this Mission Sunday. I know how important this week is in the life of, of this church. And so just thank you so much, Dan and others, Peter, uh, for that invitation to be here. When I retired in March of 2012, I said I wasn't retiring, I was redeploying. I borrowed redeployment from, as a military kind of concept because it has a sense of mission connected to it. And this period of life would then allow me to focus on continuing to feel the sense of God's call on my life, of course, minus all the extra responsibilities that come with being uh, on a pastoral staff. I, I now like to say that I no longer get paid to be a Christian. So, I thank you for that slow ripple of laughter. That was, that was nice. So I entered these redeployment years with some vague hopes of what they might, life might be. Uh, I had some speaking engagements already lined up in 2012 and beyond. And, but this, today I want to give you some accounts of what God has opened up uh, during these last 10 years that has gone far beyond anything that uh, I could imagine. So I trust the message here will be the Holy Spirit's presence and promptings will be the central focus of this message and not be a focus on myself. So let's start with a reminder uh, that the Church of Jesus Christ is a church that is to be on mission. Archbishop William Temple famously said that the church is the only society that exists for the benefit of those who is not its members. Now, admittedly, that's a bit of hyperbole. We all enjoy being a part of the church community and, and benefit from that. But I think Archbishop Temple was saying that unless our view is outward to a world in desperate need of repair, then the church will turn inward. And when we turn inward, we become a club, complaining that the church is not meeting our needs, that preaching's not feeding me, that the programming is overlooking me and my family. But when we understand that the church is the gracious extension of the hands, feet, and heart of Jesus for a world in need of a savior, then our petty complaints, personal pet peeves, or even our political prejudices are set aside. So that being said, I wanna turn our attention to the core mission of the church. We already have highlighted the kind of the two focal points in terms of scripture that we're gonna be focusing in on. First one is of course, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, where we hear about the great commission and the central mission of the church being to make disciples. And then we couple that with Acts chapter one, verse eight, 
where Jesus promises that the Holy Spirit will come upon us and will provide the power necessary for able to carry out that mission to Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So I'm entitling this message, Go Where the Spirit Leads, and you'll hear uh, quite a number of stories from me over, from over the last uh, 10 years. It's generally agreed that the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, 18 through 20 is the mission of every church. I like to kind of set the scene uh, for how that commission was, was, was created. Jesus invited his disciples to meet him on a mountain in Galilee. And when they appeared before Jesus, scripture says, very honestly, they worshiped him, but some doubted. I think they were probably still having difficulty believing their own eyes that the resurrected Christ was in front of them. And I think he appeared like he appeared to Thomas. Nail pierced hands, spear wounds in his side, but standing there before him. And they must have had a sense of worshiping at that time. And then Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I always like to say, you need to stop when those words are said and say, what did he say? That's the most audacious thing I've ever heard that could ever have come out of a person's mouth. Jesus is claiming that the Father has given him honor and rule over everything that is. I like the way Abraham Kuyper put it. He says, there is not one square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. So it'd be hard to imagine that the Great Commission did not begin with the disciples falling down and worshiping Jesus in that moment. <clears throat> and then we hear, read these words. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, and I am with you always to the end of the age. <clears throat> I probably need to get my bottle of water here. <laughs> we've been uh, nonstop traveling for the last month. Been to Zambia, been to Tennessee, flew in from Budapest on Friday, so I've got a little raspy voice. So it's been noted that there is one singular imperative in this text. One, this I must do, make disciples. C.S. Lewis wonderfully underscores this in these words. The church exists for no other purpose but to draw men into Christ, to make them little Christ. If they're not doing that, all the cathedrals, clergy, missions, sermons, even the Bible itself are simply a waste of time. God became man for no other purpose. It's even doubtful, you know, whether the whole universe was created for any other purpose. So with this in mind, I've really had one question on my mind that I've wanted to answer. How? How do we make disciples? Fortunately, we have the model for us right there in Scripture itself. We know how because Jesus showed us how. He surrounded himself with a group of 12. He invested his life in them over a three-year period. Even in that group of 12, he had a subset of three, Peter, James, and John. That will be an important little fact in a moment. In other words, disciples are made in personal, intentional relationship over time. We need people in our lives with whom we are intimate and focused, who walk alongside of us to make sure that the foundations in Christ are in place. 
And from that secure place, then we can go out and serve him in all parts of the world. I stumbled on what I would consider the kind of the aha moment of my, of my ministry. I found through experimentation that small groups of three to four people, and we call them microgroups, can create a, a, an ideal environment to build trust and apply life-changing power of God's word right where we live. I like to call these the hothouses of the Holy Spirit because of the accelerated growth I've seen in these little groups of three to four that are gathered together. So put it like this, the, this, the, the micro group is the environment, the contents, context, and the, the discipleship curriculum is the content that you put in the context. My book, Discipleship Essentials, is a, a book that we use for the ministry that I'm a part of, which I will describe to you in a moment. And to my great astonishment, that book is now in 29 languages around the world. And I will boldly say, if we do not have trusted partners with whom we are meeting regularly for the purpose of becoming fully devoted disciples, this is probably not the most important thing in your life. If we don't have people that we're regularly meeting with for the express purpose of becoming a disciple of Jesus, it's probably not the most important thing in your life. And this leads me to the major development that has occurred during my develop, redeployment years. During the first few years of redeployment, I went from Monterey in the north to a church in just north, of Southern, uh, just north of Los Angeles called Camarillo Community Church. And the core staff there, led by Pastor Ralph Rittenhouse, whose picture you will see, had read my book, Transforming Discipleship, and actually followed the prescription that I said in terms of how you transform your church into a disciple-making congregation. So they formed these little microgroups. They multiplied over time. Over a five-year period, they went from zero microgroups to 150. It defined the culture uh, of the church. And every time I went there to help them in their growth as a church, I, I was excitedly approached by more than one person who would come up with, to me with their, their Discipleship Essentials books in hand, excited about where they started in the process, how they participated in the group, and then all the groups that they've led, and how those people then had multiplied. And you know, then they went up to 150 groups in that period of time. So this was a, a major important event. In summer of 2015, I was invited to teach at the Camarillo Church for what they called the Global Discipleship Summit. They had invited people from all over the globe to come and participate for a week-long training, which I was uh, the principal teacher for. And as I was anticipating this event, the Holy Spirit seemed to say to me, in relationship to partnership with Ralph, the pastor of the church, that we needed to hook up and start a ministry together. So as I was standing on the platform like I am today and getting ready to give my first message, now, Ralph stepped up and I said, Ralph, I've been praying about this and I think God is calling us to join together, to create a ministry together. He just gave me a little Cheshire Cat smile back, uh, obviously knowing something that I didn't know. What he didn't tell me at the time was that he had already resigned as the pastor of the church. He had been there for 32 years. And the reason for his resigning was that he felt it was time for the two of us to start a ministry. Now, I didn't know that, <laughs> but that's the way the Holy Spirit works, right? You can communicate uh, to, to both sides there. So the long and the short of it is that in April of 2016, we formed Global Discipleship Initiative. 
We now have national directors in five countries, Nepal, Romania, the Philippines, Ukraine, and the latest one is from Zambia, where I return, have just recently been. And the tagline for our ministry is transforming and multiplying disciples through microgroups. Our very first GDI value is disciple making is the church's mission, not just one bullet point of the many things that a church does. Now, I need to make a segue at this point. What do we mean by disciple? When we're talking about disciples, what do we mean by that? There seems to be some confusion about that because we seem to make a distinction between you can be a Christian without being a disciple. We create two different categories here. So one particular Sunday, let me illustrate, uh, a pastor apparently gave a barn burner sermon on discipleship, and this did not sit well with a woman in the congregation. So she approached the pastor after worship, just could, could have just easily been a man, and she said to him, Pastor, I just want to be a Christian. I don't want to be a disciple. I like my life the way it is. I believe that Jesus died for my sins and I will be with him when I die. Why do I have to be a disciple? Well, so let's take a look at her statement here. Uh, what distinctions does she make? She thinks there are two categories, Christian, disciple. I think I'll choose Christian. Why don't you wanna be a disciple? Well, I like my life the way it is. Apparently, if I'm a disciple, that's gonna disturb my life as it is. And maybe it's the Africa thing, you know, we're gonna send me to Africa. Uh, what, is she, what does she think a Christian is? I believe that Jesus died for my sins and I will be with him when I die. She's done all that she thought she needed to do. And then she asked the concluding question, why do I have to be a disciple? She saw no connection between being a Christian and being a disciple. There was no necessary connection between the two. Well, how did she come to this conclusion that this is all possible? It's not in spite of the gospel that we've been preaching, but actually because of the gospel that we've been preaching that she came to that conclusion. And what's the gospel that this woman heard? I think I can give you a pretty good summary of that and because we do it in accounting terms. First part is that we have accrued an eternal debt because of our sin before a holy God. But thanks be to God, don't despair, God sent Jesus to cancel the debt of our sin because of his substitutionary death on the cross. Number three, Jesus rose again from the dead to show that he has defeated death and that sin has been paid for. And then here comes the great offer, the accounting transaction. If we put our trust in Jesus Christ, then his credit is transferred to our account and it cancels our debt. And we receive a receipt that says, paid in full, you're good to go. Isn't that the gospel? Isn't that the message that we oftentimes hear? Is it any wonder that she saw no connection between being a Christian and being a disciple? But if we look at the terms that Jesus talks about in terms of discipleship, it's quite different than the message that she heard. When Jesus calls us to follow him, he uses rather harsh and drastic language, at least to our ears. Mark chapter eight, verses 34 and 35. And calling the crowd to him, notice who he's speaking to, calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever will save his life will lose it. Whoever loses life for my sake and the gospel will find it. 
Though he addressed the crowd, it wasn't some elite special forces group that he was talking to here. No, this message was for everybody. And why does, but why does Jesus use such extreme language here? Doesn't it sound extreme? Deny self, take up cross, lose your life for my sake? These descriptions seem very harsh to our ears because we live in a culture of self-fulfillment. For Americans, it's all about independence, autonomy, my rights. Robert Bella, a sociologist, wrote a well-known book called Habits of the Heart, and he summed up the view of the American, what make, makes Americans Americans. And it's an American view of freedom, but it's a skewed view of freedom. It's freedom from obligation. And to quote him, Americans like to say, I wanna do what I wanna do, when I wanna do it, and nobody better tell me otherwise. Apologist, uh, anthropologist Paul Hebert summed it up this way. The dominant religion in the West is that the self has become God and self-fulfillment our salvation. And then Jesus comes along with this rather harsh, severe language. Why? What was he getting at when he said deny self? Well, I think he goes to the very core of the human problem. Deny self means to deny self-worship. Self-worship is the root of what has gone wrong with us. Another word for this is pride. Pride in relationship to God is to compete with God for ascendancy. Uh, this is, of course, what happened in the Garden of Eden when the serpent says to, to Eve and, in essence, also to Adam, you too can be God. Autonomy, self-rule, self-sufficiency, independence from any accountability is at the heart of the human problem. So when Jesus says deny self, he's going directly at the heart of the human problem. It starts with self-worship, deny self-worship. Human dethronement must be the first step if we wanna be shaped into Christ-likeness. How would I respond to the woman's question, why do I have to be a disciple? I would say to her, you don't have to be. It's your choice. But the choice you don't have is to be a forgiveness-only Christian. That's something we have made up. That's not an option that the Bible gives us. The New Testament is about being a follower of Jesus. In fact, interestingly enough, the word disciple is used 268 times in the New Testament. The word Christian is used three times. The New Testament is about being a follower of Jesus in all that we do. Now, back to the Great Commission. Have we hopefully have clarified something about what Jesus is talking about when he says make disciples. But there's a power that we need to make disciples. And that's where Acts 1.8 comes in. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. As you know, the story of the book of Acts is the story of the spread of the gospel from the home base of Jerusalem and Judea to that alternative community of Samaria that was shunned to the very ends of the earth. And it's the story of how the apostles, against all odds, took the message of the gospel and proclaimed that there is no other name under heaven by which people can be saved, the name of Jesus. And also, the book of Acts is known as the Acts of the Apostles, but it's also known as the Acts of the Holy Spirit. 
And so submitting ourselves to the Holy Spirit is that which allows us to fulfill the Great Commission. So I wanna share in the rest of this message just some of the ways that the Holy Spirit seemed to speak to me over the last 10 years and what has materialized as a result of it. I don't wanna hold myself up as a great example. I've responded well in some instances and not so well in others, but this is some of the ways that I've heard the Holy Spirit speak. The very first one is the Holy Spirit speaks in a still, small voice. One of my first speaking opportunities in 2012 took me to Kota Kinabalu, Malaysia. I was there to speak at the Asian Pacific Consultation on Discipleship, and when I arrived, the director of the conference, Charles Lee, said, meet Pradeep Cha. He's gonna introduce you as to speak. As Pradeep and I chatted briefly, he said, oh, he'd read my book, Transforming Discipleship. He had been given it by a Southern Baptist missionary. He was applying it to his ministry in Nepal. And so Pradeep introduced me, I gave my talk, and then lunch came right afterwards. So we had about a 15-minute opportunity to sit down and chat. And in that 15 minutes, I heard the Holy Spirit say to me, pay attention to this relationship. He's an unusually gifted young man. I have my hand on him. So Pradeep and I exchanged contact information. Uh, we started communicating to each other on Skype. That sounds quaint in this day and age, doesn't it? And, uh, but that's all we had available. And uh, so I got to know him. We found out that he was a Hindu convert at age 18. He had been rejected by his family, thrown out of his, his village. Uh, his father had uh, basically said that he had shamed his family and him, he wrote him letters of saying that he was gonna commit suicide as a result of what the shame that he had brought upon, upon his family. So Pradeep and I decided to, I said, how, do, how can I help you? What, what way can I be of assistance to your ministry? He said, well, I'd like to put together a pastor's church leaders conference, which he did in, in February of 2013. Lily and I went, became a part of that time, got a chance to, to know uh, Pradeep and Julie Cha and uh, develop a relationship with them. I returned to Nepal in October 2014, and then again in, in December of 2016, where we named Pradeep our first national director for GDI. You can imagine that relationship has developed. About three years ago, and this is the wonderful part of the story, Pradeep's parents were baptized into Christ. I'm tempted to tell a little side story on that, but it'll take a little time, no. Uh, so over 20 years of faithful witness, God honored that witness by bringing his parents into Christ. Pradeep had then recorded the entire Bible in their native language called Mightily. And his father listens to the Bible as a way of learning scripture uh, these days. So Lily and I are hoping to go back uh, to Nepal in, in January to continue on our mission there. So how does God speak? Still small voice. Have you heard him speak to you in a still small voice? Have you responded to it and done what that voice says? Second thing is the Holy Spirit speaks to us in our fears. One of the things you can count on if you relinquish your life to the Holy Spirit's control is that you will come face to face with fear. You will be taken out of your comfort zone into territory 
where you would not have chosen on, on your own devices. And Jesus concludes the Great Commission with this little phrase. And lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. I am with you always. Why that phrase? That is used 364 times in the Bible in one form or another. I am with you, I will be with you, always speaking to the fear of the one being called. And uh, you know, making disciples can be a fearful thing. It's because of our inadequacy and that we fear and the dominant spirit uh, that comes upon us. We have an enemy who wants to thwart us in our call through fear. I think fear is one of the greatest, most powerful emotions that we all experience. And we run, run from it in fear. The most surprising venture of my redeployment years has been to get involved in prison ministry. A few months before leaving Christ Church, I received a message from a chaplain at the John B. Connolly Maximum Security Prison in Kennedy, Texas, about an hour's drive south of San Antonio. And he had a phrase from my book, Transforming Discipleship, that they turned into a mural in this faith-based unit in this Texas prison, uh, built around the hot houses of the Holy Spirit. The 48 men committed themselves to be disciples of Jesus in prison, and I wrote back to Craig at the time, just shortly before my retirement, and I said, well, I'll be retiring soon. I would love to come and visit you and see what you're doing, and perhaps I could offer a word of encouragement to these men. Big mistake. I was secretly hoping that he would not desire to follow through on that comment. Well, he did. And the truth is, prison ministry terrified me. I would hear people give witness about going into maximum security prisons, holding Bible studies, speaking at chapels. And usually it was somebody who was about six foot four, built like a brick, 250 pounds, who could win a battle in a prison. I'd be dead meat. My inward response usually was, God bless you for doing that. I can't imagine doing that myself. In fact, one of the elders from this church told me when I described him what I was doing, he said, you are the last person in the world I would ever have thought would be involved in prison ministry. Thank you for that vote of confidence. <clears throat> and I had to say, you're right, actually. I was the last person I could imagine in the whole, of being involved in prison ministry. How can I possibly relate to these men? My prissy life has been so easy. Well, I went to Kennedy, Texas in September 2012. I was jittery especially as I heard the metal doors clang behind me. I was glad later that I had not seen the sign posted at the gate, at the gate which you saw when you exited for the final time. It read, no hostages beyond this point. Think about it. Translation, you will all die right here under a hail of gunfire. Well, on the first day I was in, I, Craig, the chaplain brought in four groups of people over, over the day. I spoke to the four groups of people. As they were coming in, I did the kind of the usual pastoral thing. I shook the hands of the men as they were coming in, into the chapel. I introduced myself. I asked my, them their name. Uh, they knew somewhat about me because they were using some of my discipleship materials in the prison. What I didn't realize later was that the guards only know them by cell and bed number, no names. No identity. And basically, I was saying to them, I see you. I know, I know you. The second day, uh, I was with the 48 men of the picture you saw on the screen. And they kind of lined the outlines of a, a fairly big room. 
And the first question I got from Lupe was, were you nervous when you came in here? Lupe was aware that these men can be fairly intimidating. This is maximum security prison. Their average sentences were 50 years to life. They'd done some pretty nasty things. And I said, yeah, I was nervous. The peace that passes understanding had not caught up to me yet. <laughs> and Lupe said, you didn't seem nervous. Thank God. But the Holy Spirit was waiting to ambush me. At the end of this session, Rocky, speaking on behalf of the group, said, we are the forgotten people. Don't forget us. Oof. That was a stab in the heart. God jumped me. I came back three months later to check out whether what had happened was actually genuine. You know, could I relate to these men? Could they relate to me? And I had that sense of connection. And so I realized I don't have to go to Texas to find a prison. There are a few of them in California. So I called the prison about 45 minute drive from me and spoke to the chaplain there. I said, how can you use me? He said, it'd be wonderful if you could take over our, our Wednesday morning Protestant chapel. So I did. So for six and a half years, I would show up every Wednesday morning, uh, get there in time to have some interaction with the men, lead a Bible study. Uh, but most important was just relating to them, showing up on a regular basis. Rut Fleming Rutledge has profoundly written, trying to understand somebody else's predicament is the lies at the very heart of what it means to be a Christian. Trying to understand someone else's predicament lies at the very heart of what it means to be a Christian. And what I found was just showing up meant a lot. Persistent presence said, we, I care about you. And I never have met a more thankful group of men in my life. Every week, one or more would say, thank you for coming. I know you don't have to be here. I know it takes some time out of your life. I, time does not permit me to tell you story after story of redeemed lives that I've had an opportunity to see. In fact, I used to say to them, I come to prison to see Jesus because I see it in you. I see the way he's transformed your lives. So God speaks to us in the midst of our fears. When you're fearing something, don't run from it. Lean into it. Ask God for courage to face it in your, uh, when you're out of your comfort zone. And then finally, the Holy Spirit sovereignly opens doors in surprising ways. Global Discipleship Initiative, my ministry has a, has a BHAG. You know what a BHAG is? Some of you must know what a BHAG is. A big, hairy, audacious goal, okay? It's a BHAG, B-H-A-G. Our big, hairy, audacious goal is that we will have a disciple-making ministry all along the way we do it in every country of the world by the year 2026. And then what I love about that is that it's impossible. We could never make that happen. It's only through the Holy Spirit surprisingly opening doors and making connections where that will ever take place. So let me tell you the story of the Lord performing his sovereign work outside of our field of vision. The most wonderfully surprising thing has been the work that the Lord has been doing in China. Out of the blue in 2017, I was contacted by Christian Communications Limited, a publishing house in Hong Kong. They had informed me that a four book set of 
the Essentials books had been included in a 20-book packet that they give to the 5,000 graduates from Bible schools and seminaries in China every year. Didn't know that they had 5,000 graduates from Bible schools and seminaries in China, did you? I didn't either. And included among these were Discipleship Essentials and Essential Commandment, two books that I wrote, and then Leadership Essentials that Dan and I wrote together, and then Dan's book, Witness Essentials, is a part of that package as well. So what's the story behind this? For these books to be translated, uh, they had to be in what is called simplified script in Chinese. Now, if you're somebody who has left China, like my mother-in-law did in 1948, she would not be able to read simplified script of Chinese. She could read classical or traditional script. But the Chinese decided to simplify the pictures, picture language that they have so that they could address the illiteracy rate in China. And unbeknownst to me, uh, our books had been translated into simplified Chinese, used exclusively in mainline communist China. And the publishing house was the Nanjing Theological Seminary that had translated these books <coughs> and made them, made them known and available. Usually it takes, well, the, the Christian church in China, the, the, the um, the registered church of China is under communist uh, control. And you get anything published in that, in that country, you have to go through the, through the government. And I was told that usually that takes two to three years to get anything approved, if at all. And I was told also that our books took six months to get approved. Fast-tracked for whatever reason. And now given to, to those in China. So... Lily and I went to China twice in 2018. First of all, in July of 18, we were training church leaders in one county in a third-tier city of 8 million people. That's a little bit different scale, isn't it? Everywhere we went, there was a representative of the communist government checking out these foreigners who were there. We had the opportunity to test our microgroup concept with this training session in preparation for coming back to China in November of that year to speak at a pastor's conference. And you see the image of that pastor's conference on the screen. And Thomas Tang from the Christian Communications Limited constantly said, you've been granted favor. This is unusual that you are able to, to do this. Even though we were scheduled to return again in China in 2020, we have not been able to, to go back. But that doesn't mean that the gospel is not penetrating China. Uh, you'll see an image on the screen here of a Chinese woman tennis player who is training at the Novak Djokovic Training Academy in Belgrade, Serbia, where Lily and I were in April. She attends the International Christian Fellowship, and she's pictured there with a copy of Discipleship Essentials in her hand. She's going to go back to China. She has access, uh, and so there's never a barrier uh, to our Lord in terms of making certain things happen. Well, let me sum up here. We've been on a, a great adventure following Jesus when he's opened the ways for us to be able to go. Spirit has spoken in a still small voice. Instead of running from fear, I've been able to stare it down at times and walk into it. I've had the opportunity to wonderfully be blindsided by the Holy Spirit's working outside of our field of vision. At times I feel like I'm just a spectator of God's sovereign activity. 
So let me conclude with this thought. It's common these days to talk about finishing well. It will not surprise you that in, this is constantly on my mind. There's a lot more sand that is poured out of my hourglass than remains. Whether you are 18 or 25 or 50 or on the verge of retirement, it's never too early or too late to think about finishing well, finish the race, run through the tape. Paul uses athletic images to describe the Christian faith. He says, do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, though only one gets the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, we an imperishable wreath. Let me ask you this. Who's the most tragic figure in the Bible? Who would you nominate? Most tragic figure in the Bible. I'm gonna propose that Solomon is the most tragic figure, David's son. He's the one who had it all and finished in disgrace. He was given wisdom beyond his years. He completed the task of building the temple and then offering the prayers of dedication. Apparently he did not listen to his own prayers for he prayed that the people would be faithful and if they were not, that God would bring cleansing judgment upon them. But we read in 1 Kings chapter 11 that Solomon allowed the allure of many wives to turn his heart away from Yahweh to the gods of the wives that their kingdoms represented. He became full of himself, decided to coast to the finish line. Missiologist Ralph Winter incisively said, obedience to the Great Commission has more consistently been poisoned by affluence than anything else. We are easily distracted because most of us can live a comfortable life. As the woman said when confronted by being a disciple, I like my life the way it is. I was told years ago that the challenge of the retirement years was to balance freedom with significance. No, I don't keep the pace that I used to when I was working here. I get my daily nap in. But frankly, Lily and I are having the time of our life being able to serve the global church as long as we are able. Jesus said, he who loses his life for my sake will find it. The happiest people on earth are those who live a life of service to the king. Finish well. Run through the tape. Amen.